0: Good evening. Elections come down to the wire in Peru. Mexico's president suffers a setback. Kamala goes to Guatemala and the right to use the city park as Native Americans in upstate New York and Canada debate whether or not they want to open up marijuana businesses. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, June 7th, 2021. Peruvian socialist Pedro Castillo edged ahead of right-wing rival Keiko Fujimori in the country's presidential election vote count on Monday. The official count from yesterday's voting showed former teacher Castillo with 50.2 percent of the vote and Fujimori with 49.8 percent with over 95 percent of the vote counted. Castillo, the son of peasant farmers, has pledged to shake up the Andean nation's constitution and mining laws. As the vote turned in Castillo's favor, copper producers and local markets fell sharply in Monday trading. It could take days to get a final total with the possibility of uncertainty and tension in the race that set two very different visions of Peru's future at odds. The 51-year-old Castillo has rallied supporters to defend the vote, while Fujimori 46, the daughter of ex-president Alberto Fujimori, who is in prison for human rights abuses and corruption, also appealed for prudence, calm and peace. Whoever wins will face a fragmented Congress with no one party holding a majority. Castillo, seen as a champion of the poor, has promised to take a larger portion of profits from mining firms. And in Mexico, where another pivotal pardon me, pivotal election in Latin America is being decided. President André Manuel López Obrador vowed today to continue his shakeup of the country after midterm elections that eroded his power base in Congress and the Capitol, but saw his party capture new ground and regional votes. Since taking office, López Obrador has pushed through austerity measures to help fund welfare programs and infrastructure, including a new refinery and railway line. And despite setbacks in Mexico City, López Obrador says he's achieved most of his goals. But the mixed results may reflect less a country stepping back from his socially progressive policies and more about the state of terror by organized crime that's caused the death of hundreds of candidates. Pacifica's Norma Martinez reports from Mexico City.
1: Midterm elections in Mexico, where over 20,000 elected public offices are at the stake, have been stained by blood. At least 91 politicians, 35 of them candidates, have been killed during the campaign. One of the attacks occurred on May 25th.
2: El deporte, abandonado,
1: las calles, todos nosotros como ciudadanos abandonados muchos años. Ana Rosa Barragán, a candidate for mayor in Moroleón in the state of Guanajuato, was shot to death during a campaign rally. Candidates of the ruling party and members of the opposition have been victims of killings, kidnappings and other acts of violence which are in the hundreds to date. Bruce Hobson is co-editor of the Mexico Solidarity Project Bulletin. He says the violence has not stopped since the year 2000 when the government was taken over by the conservative National Action Party, the PAN.
3: I don't see the, the assassination of political candidates as separate from the issue of violence generally in Mexico. The violence is really fundamentally a political question in Mexico. It's not just a question of the terrible fear that people live with, which is very real. And there's unquestionably the numbers of people who have been killed in Mexico, particularly during the reign of the PRI and the PAN parties, is just horrendous.
1: According to trade unionist leader Cesar Hernandez, political violence is being amplified by the media. He says organized crime wants a seat at the table to decide how the country will be governed.
3: No, porque hoy se esté dando una disputa entre Morena y los otros partidos, sino porque siempre hay una disputa por el poder, y dentro de esa disputa también la delincuencia organizada quiere su tajada.
1: Presidente López Obrador has called on Mexicans to go out this Sunday and vote without fear. The right wing has launched an intense campaign urging people to vote against what they call an authoritarian government. The Catholic hierarchy is also asking people not to support Morena. Cardinal Juan Sandoval Iniguez in the video recorded message asked Mexicans not to vote for the ruling party, which he accused
4: of being communist. Se trata de un the
1: business sector also promotes a vote against Morena. In the state of Chihuahua, factory workers claim they are being pressured by their bosses to vote for a candidate that is good for the business. One of the leaders of the anti-government campaign is businessman Claudio X. Gonzalez, the founder of the organization Mexicans Against Corruption and Impunity, who, according to López Obrador, has received $2.5 million from USAID, the United States Agency for International Development. The Mexican president has accused Washington of interventionism and has asked President Joseph Biden to stop financing the opposition group. Again, Bruce Hobson, co-editor of the Mexico Solidarity Project Bulletin.
3: Mexico has been invaded militarily by the United States 14 times. And the intervention that AMLO is talking about is not specifically military, but it is something that is a feature of how the United States has looked at, treated, and stomped on Mexico for 150 years.
1: Again, Peter Geller.
3: The United States
0: has always considered Mexico to be its uh, backyard or the patio. Today is no exception. The only exception is that the Mexican government is protesting this intervention. While well, in the past that was not the case. But painting AMLO as a messianic, as a dictator, it's just a complete variance is what's going on in the country. The right-wing opposition has been organizing dozens, hundreds of demonstrations. There have been all sorts of protests. The police repression has been virtually non-existent.
1: Por Pacifica Radio, this is Norma Martínez in Mexico City.
0: And thank you, Norma. And... Meanwhile, Mexico is on the itinerary for Vice President Kamala Harris, who's currently in Guatemala on her first overseas trip by the first female and woman of color to hold the second most powerful office in the United States. When Harris arrives tomorrow, the two countries, and she's going to ride in Mexico tomorrow, she's currently in Guatemala, are expected to sign an accord on development linked to immigration. Harris appeared for a joint news conference today with Guatemala's president, Alejandro Gimate and with an aid package to address a spike in migration to the United States. She also delivered a direct warning to migrants considering making the trek.
5: The power of hope, the ability that each of our governments has to give people a sense that help is on the way, to let them know that they are seen, that they are heard, that we see their capacity, but we also understand their challenges. The President and I discussed the importance of anti-corruption and the importance of an independent judiciary. The United States will create an anti-corruption task force, the first of its kind. At the same time, I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border.
0: Vice President Kamala Harris. Meanwhile, in Washington, a unanimous Supreme Court ruled Monday, that's today, that thousands of people living in the United States for humanitarian reasons are ineligible to apply to become permanent residents. Justice Elena Kagan wrote the opinion that federal immigration law prohibits people who enter the country illegally and now have temporary protected status from seeking green cards to remain in the country permanently. The designation applies to people who come from countries ravaged by war or disaster. There are four hundred thousand people from 12 countries with TPS status. They include El Salvador, Haiti, Honduras, Myanmar, Nepal, Nicaragua, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen. In more national news. The Justice Department says it's recovered most of a multi-million dollar ransom payment to hackers after a cyber attack that caused the operator of the nation's largest fuel pipeline to halt its operations last month. The operation to recover the cryptocurrency from the Russia-based hacker group is the first undertaken by a specialized ransomware task force created by the Biden administration. Georgia-based Colonial Pipeline temporarily shut down its operations on May 7th after a gang of criminal hackers known as DarkSide broke. Broke into its computer system. The pipeline supplies roughly half the fuel consumed on the East Coast, and the shutdown caused panic buying. And shortages throughout the southeast. The ransom was 63.7 bitcoins, equivalent to $4.4 million, depending on what day you cashed in the bitcoin, since the price of bitcoin has been going up and down drastically and radically in recent days and weeks. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the upcoming G7 meeting of top economic powers will address the growing problem with ransomware attacks
6: things we'd like to see out of the G7 is the start of an action plan that covers a number of critical areas. First, uh, how to deal with the, uh, increasing the robustness and resilience of our defenses against ransomware attacks collectively. Second, how to share information about the nature of the threat among our democracies. Third, how to deal with the cryptocurrency challenge, which is, lies at the core of, of how this, these uh, ransom transactions are played out. Uh, and then finally, how we collectively speak with one voice to those country- countries, including Russia, that are harboring um, or permitting uh, cyber criminals to operate from their territory. So those are some of the things that um, we are looking for as outcomes out of the G7+. We will also speak in the NATO context about cyber threats, particularly as they relate to critical infrastructure as being of a different order of magnitude of security threat that the alliance has to concern itself with in a way that it hasn't historically but it's got to become a priority on a going Jay- forward Jay- yeah
0: national security advisor jake sullivan the g7 used to be called the g8 until russia was kicked out in 2014 after it sent troops to crimea and you're listening to the news on wbai new york i'm paul di in new york city A New York One Ipsos poll shows Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams has surged to the front of the pack, overtaking Andrew Yang and building a six-point lead in the Democratic primary for mayor. The poll found Adams leading the field with 22 percent support from likely Democratic voters, compared with 16 percent for Yang. Catherine Garcia leapfrogged up to 15 percent. Scott Stringer, under fire for allegations of sexual harassment, slipped to fourth place at 10 percent, followed by progressive candidate Maya Wiley at 9 percent. The primary is June 22nd, with early voting beginning June 12th. Adams, a former NYPD captain, has positioned himself as tough on crime, with New York in the grips of a crime wave of sorts. Despite low overall crime numbers, there's been an increase in subway assaults, bias attacks, and seemingly senseless random shootings that are frightening New Yorkers. On Saturday night, a 10-year-old Queens child was killed and a man was wounded in a hail of bullets. The shooting of elementary school student Justin Wallace remains unsolved. The incidents have given impetus for calls to reform parole for prisoners in New York not to make parole tougher, but to weed out reformed and elderly prisoners and provide more support for newly released inmates. In Albany, one of the proposals at hand is elder elder parole under the bill incarcerated New Yorkers over the age of 55 who have served at least 15 years of their sentence would get an automatic parole hearing. And the Fair and Timely Parole Act, which would allow a parole board to place more of a focus on incarcerated persons rehabilitation. The bills have to be passed before the legislature ends its session on Thursday. Bronx District Attorney Darcel Clark says it's not a get tough approach that's needed to combat recent shootings, but more outreach to poor communities to end disputes before they escalate.
2: The reform is necessary, but we also have to pay attention to what is happening in our communities. So, you know, that's why I had a march on Friday for Gun Violence Awareness Day to bring attention to this, to let the communities know that we care about them. I marched right in the belly of the beast, right through those areas in the Bronx, where these gang members sit and they're shooting and so many homicides and things happen along the walk that we did. And those communities were happy to see the DA there, to see the police there, to see our Cure Violence partners there. All of us together, the clergy, the youth, that is the way that we're going to get ahead. My plan for the summer is called Bronx Peace, which I'm calling Peace because it's precision enforcement enforcement and community engagement. Mr. Mayor, you're absolutely right. You talked about we can be safe and have reform and be fair at the same time. And that's what I'm willing to do.
0: Bronx District Attorney Darcel Clark. Governor Andrew Cuomo, who would have to sign the parole reform bills into law, has his own uh, view of the problem in New York City. He lays the blame on Mayor Bill de Blasio.
4: As far as the mayor is concerned, and you know, what I think about him. And you know what, frankly, most New Yorkers think about him, right? I'm just, I'm just with the majority of New Yorkers. I'm a Queens boy, uh, so I'm, I'm with the Queens boys and the Bronx boys and the Manhattan women. Not thrilled. The reality is the reality. I get up and I give you the numbers on COVID. I say it's 0.5. Either I'm doing well in my COVID management or I'm not doing well. It's in the numbers. Crime is in the numbers. Homelessness is in the numbers. It's a fact. It's a fact. If I say to you today, we have the second lowest positivity in the United States of America. That's a fact. There's one state and then there's New York. Judge me on the fact. The crime statistics and homeless statistics and the reality of walking down a street in New York is a fact. What I'm trying to say, and that's yesterday, it's going to be about the next mayor. And what do they see as a fact? And what are they going to do about it? As a voter, I'm saying focus on two issues, crime, homelessness. The economy will come back. If it's not being stopped by crime and quality of life. I'm not going to visit New York. People are getting shot all over the place. I'm not going to invest in my small business. I'm worried about crime. I'm not going to buy an apartment in that neighborhood. There's homeless people on the street corner who are throwing rocks. It has to be addressed. I do not agree with defund the police.
0: Governor Cuomo, meanwhile, the mayor had his own briefing today. He spoke about his approach to crime in the city, but first he crowed about the steadily improving COVID-19 indicators.
7: As we do every day, let's do our indicators. And thank God, again, the indicators give us good news. Number one, daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19. Today's report, 59 patients. This is unbelievable. This number is so low uh, confirmed positivity 8.47%. 8.47% confirmed positivity among the folks in the hospitals. Hospitalization rate 0.46 per 100,000. See that line just goes straight down. That's what we need more of. Now, number two, new reported cases on a seven-day average. Days report, 204 cases. Another example, just constant progress. And number three, percent of people testing citywide positive for COVID-19. Record-setting figure today on a seven-day rolling average, 0.71%. People said a couple of weeks ago, oh, this is as low as it can go. No, it can go lower, and we're going to fight to make it lower.
0: And that was Mayor de Blasio. And an issue that started small but is quickly escalating into a guidepost for the city has been the handling of complaints of noise and rowdy behavior at several lower Manhattan parks. That's led to a sudden 10 p.m. curfew at Washington Square Park two hours earlier than usual, and now without much community input. On Saturday night, there was a confrontation with police and parkgoers that led to 23 arrests. Let's go. Let's go, in. Let's go. But on Sunday night, police suddenly backed away from the curfew, allowing revelers to play music and hang out in the park all night long. Young people responded to allegations they left the park filthy, showed up with garbage bags and policed the park, but in their own way. Despite stepping back from the curfew for now, de Blasio, who claimed the early park closing was a police decision, says he's just trying to get ahead of any disorder this summer. That's a decision that local police commanders have to make based on what they see
7: so I just was not involved in that one, but I understand and appreciate that if they see a situation where it makes sense to effectuate a closure, I think that's the smart thing to do. The Washington Square Park curfew, we've had many conversations here at City Hall and with One Police Plaza about that. I think it's also the right thing to do for this moment. I'd like to see the point come where it's no longer necessary, but we've had a series of issues and problems, and I think a proactive approach is the right way to do it.
8: It sounds like what you're saying is you're you are okay with
0: police making a decision to unilaterally close parks without any sort of public notice to the
7: community. This is one of the most open cities in the world and it will always be and it must be. We've learned a lot of things in the last year or two and one of the lessons is proactive action is better. It's something that happens rarely, honestly, it's not needed in the vast majority of places but it is needed sometimes. So we'll do it when
0: necessary. I don't think you'll see it that often, but we'll do it when necessary. And de Blasio seemed to shift the emphasis for building back New York post-pandemic on moves like corralling young park-goers rather than crime-fighting. And we
7: had to strike a balance. And one of the things that I decided a long time ago was we were not going to take the kinds of risks that could lead to the loss of life. We were not going to see a situation of upheaval going on for months and months and months. We were not going to see uh, the attacks that we saw on property in some of the other cities in this country that went on for weeks or months. Uh, We weren't going to see attacks on civilians or people in uniform or police precinct. We weren't going to have any of that here. We were going to have peace. We were going to have the ability to move forward out of this pandemic.
0: The mayor, You know, I was at the park on Friday and on Saturday and I talked to friends who were there on Sunday and I saw very little of what he was talking about and the things that happened, the things that got into like a protest and political confrontation with Black Lives Matter and others only happened after there were already arrests and and conflicts. So uh, I don't really see what the mayor is talking about. That's my own input. Attorney Stanley Cohen is a veteran of many battles over rights to use city parks, stretching back to the curfew that led to major civil unrest in Tompkins Square Park, beginning with a police riot in 1988 that injured 120 people and a subsequent homeless encampment in the park that lasted for several years. He says what the Blasio did is a clear violation of park users' civil rights.
9: Well, it's unconstitutional. I mean, when it comes to assembly and speech, there are the law permits for legitimate content-neutral, legitimate time, place, and manner restrictions. It permits for well, fees, uh, for licensing, and for related matters, but it can't be such that it, it precludes people without significant assets to get the applications or the permits. The notion that you can simply willy-nilly abdicate responsibility and undercut both the first amendment and the state constitution by giving the discretion the ambiguous discretion to the police department to choose who can demonstrate where and when and why and on what issues is a palpable violation of both the state and federal constitution
0: been there before these mayors in the past have had this belief that they have this ultimate power to just shut down parks as they wish what is it where does that led in the past when they tried to do that
9: well, we've always prevailed, so the, I mean, <laughs> and the strategy has run from outright <laughs> armed combat, as in 1988 and 89, in Tompkins Square Park, where, as you know, we prevailed, and basically the park was open, the only one 24-7 for about five years. Uh, you can seek uh, relief in federal court. You just have to exhaust your administrative remedies to begin with, and that, which, at which point you go into federal court, and you're going to get a federal judge to grant a restraining order restraining the police department from just willy-nilly, you know, choosing who gets to demonstrate where and when in the hours. It's got to be content neutral, and if it's content neutral and it's applied across the board, then it has some modicum of, of constitutionality. The notion that they could say Washington Square and Compton Square Park cannot get together, cannot gather, cannot have demonstrations, but you can do it in Uptown, you can do it in Brooklyn, you can do it in Central Park, is a palpable violation
0: of both the state and federal constitution. Eternally, Stanley Cohen. And now that marijuana has been legalized in New York, the first pot shops are opening in the Native American enclave known as Aquasasne but as some say peace and love others say not so fast the saint regis mohawk tribal government has issued cease and desist orders they say the shops are not safe the tribal government urges people not to patronize them until it develops regulations rival traditional longhouse mohawks point to forty one pages of regulations they have developed for the shops they say every product sold has been lab tested with documentation Attorney stanley cohen represents the aquasasney group he says the problem is in new york state but federal pot laws but Cohen says he's optimistic.
9: It's not legal in New York without going through a process. I'm actually representing people that are in in the midst of a, a licensing process. There's a whole procedure you have to go through. The, the far more interesting question when it comes to Aquasasti and other indigenous communities, and here's where it's a whammy for them. On a nation-to-nation basis, they don't have to comply with, in general with state rules and regulations. Uh, they get to deal with the feds. But when it comes to marijuana, it's still a Schedule One drug, so it's illegal per se. So you're going to have a situation in terms of the so-called U.S. side where there's going to have to be negotiations with the state that, that don't diminish or undercut the nation-to-nation requirements that have been in place for generations now. But New York State, the fact that marijuana is legal in New York, certain amounts of it to be sure does not mean that it's legal to grow more than very small amounts and there's a cap on it for your own personal use doesn't permit you to open retail shops or to set up wholesale set up wholesale operations or warehouses unless you're licensed and that's a procedure that the rules and regulations are not in place yet they should be by january i expect the retail shops and the wholesale shops and the uh, manufacturing plants should be up and running in about another eight months
0: I can't wait. I'll be the first customer online. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You be good, man. You too, man. Take care. Attorney Stanley Cohen, an old friend. And finally, a 26-minute video released by The Real News says there was one bright spot in the devastation COVID brought down on workers, the success of worker-owned cooperatives. Jaisal Noor is senior reporter at The Real News Network. So my documentary
8: was called Worker cooperatives prove that your job doesn't have to be hell. And the reason I produced this documentary was because during the pandemic, we heard lots of reports of workers being forced into unsafe conditions, um, often in frontline industries that don't offer good pay, don't offer good benefits. And, um, you know, worker cooperatives have been around for decades in, in the United States and, uh, and even in a larger scale across the world, are democratic workplaces. They pay their workers more fairly they have better benefits and they often have profit sharing and democratic decision making. I wanted to take a look at how cooperatives responded to the pandemic where you saw you know hundreds of thousands of people died and and many, and many of uh, people that got infected you know that happened in their workplaces where people weren't provided protections where workers didn't have a a say in how their businesses operated you know these um, a lot of times owners or ceos were focused on profit first and then if they could provide uh you know some safety measures they would do it but that wasn't their priority um, worker cooperatives took a different approach they prioritized their workers first because the workers are the owners. So for worker cooperatives, that is sort of the one and the same, that the business is about the people. What I found, and which is confirmed by the, the data that is available, is that worker cooperatives often fared better than other small businesses. Of the 240 worker cooperatives surveyed by the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, they were less likely to lay off workers. They were more likely to adjust their business models to respond to the pandemic. And I always looked at the challenges that worker-cooperatives face. And one of the big challenges is a lack of capital. Um, frontline workers, you know, they they are low-wage workers. They don't have a lot of money, so they have to – and banks don't loan to cooperatives because if you're a worker-owner in a cooperative, banks often ask for individuals to co-sign loans. And that, that goes against the cooperative structure. So a number of loan funds have sprung up across the United States. If you take a look at Seed Commons – which work with 60 worker cooperatives across the country during the pandemic, none of those 60 businesses had to close because of the pandemic. And that shows how the resilience of worker co-ops, Oftentimes, worker co-ops work together to overcome shortages of personal protective equipment or other challenges during the pandemic. They offered workers flexibility if they had to work from home or had to take time off to take care of their children because of a lack of child care. The goal of my documentary was to look at the challenges and the benefits that worker cooperatives face during the pandemic, and it turns out that the worker cooperatives provided a number of benefits, despite the fact that they get very little government subsidies especially compared to large corporations like amazon which often pay no taxes and get tens of millions or billions of dollars of subsidies from local state and federal governments
0: where can people watch this so you can watch it you've watched the
8: full documentary at realnews.com it's published with the support of solutions journalism watch it at our youtube site this documentary was produced under the creative commons license so feel free to Repost it, republish it, share it with your audiences, share it with your friends and family. Just give us credit at The Real News.
0: Jaisal Noor is senior reporter at The Real News Network.